creative job. There are hundreds of jobs that will pay you to think, solve, make, create, and design. In How Did I Get Here, I speak to entrepreneurs, leaders, trendsetters, and trailblazers in some of the world's most desirable jobs and ask them, how did you get here? Today, I'm speaking with James Clear. James is an author and professional speaker. He focuses on habits, decision-making, and continuous improvement. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Entrepreneur, Time, and on CBS This Morning. His website receives millions of visitors each month, and his email newsletter has hundreds of thousands of subscribers. He's a regular speaker at Fortune 500 companies, and his work is used by teams in the NFL, NBA, and MLB. Through his online course, The Habit Academy, Clear has taught more than 10,000 leaders, managers, coaches, and teachers. The Habits Academy is the premier training platform for individuals and organizations that are interested in building better habits in life and work. James has just released his first book, Atomic Habits. That's Atomic Habits, A-T-O-M-I-C, Atomic, which you can find at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Audible, iBooks, and IndieBound. I've been a long-time subscriber of James's newsletter. I've personally gained a lot from it. You can connect with James uh, on his website. That's jamesclear.com. So clear, C-L-E-A-R. On Twitter, at jamesclear. On Medium, at jamesclear. I personally really enjoyed this interview, so I hope you do too. So without further ado, please enjoy my interview with James Clear. All right. Um, well, thank you again for the opportunity. and. Um yeah, I'm excited to chat. If you uh, if you need anything from me afterward, links or bio or stuff like that, just let me know. Um, all right. Well, look, um, I want to say thank you just for me personally for for like putting out all the stuff that you're putting out. Um, I'm just subscribed, so it just comes through to my inbox, and I find myself forwarding pretty much every single thing I get from you, either around my office. Oh, thank you. Or people I know so I hope it, at your end it's delivering you the sort of success that you deserve because it's, it's really great to read um, oh thanks man yeah I appreciate that I'll uh, do my best to keep some good ideas coming your way great and I, I'm not going to probe you too much on that because I kind of want to save that for the interview but mm -hmm. just my, my opinion is I think culturally it's really timely as well because I, I just think particularly with the likes of Instagram culture is it's making everyone think in a way that they're they're kind of not good enough and they're not leading interesting enough lives and they're not achieving enough goals and things and i think what things like instagram are doing is showing you people that are that are achieving success whether that's personally or professionally and you just see the end result you don't see the systems mm. um that are in place that have got them there which is why i love your work so much because you know i always look at there's things you talk about is the equivalent of instead of just saying i want to you know get to i want to get to new york by tomorrow at 8 p.m it's kind of an absolute uh, itinerary for exactly what you need to do mm -hmm. and just by following that you know by default you'll get to new york at 8 p.m tomorrow or you might get there at 8 p.m in a week's time but you will you know just mm -hmm. by following these simple things you will get there um yeah that's an interesting analogy um we live in this weird culture right now where it's like, so uh, maybe people have always been this way, but it seems seems to be heightened with our current technological uh, society, which is that we're very outcome focused. That's particularly uh, true for any news organization or Instagram or whatever. You, you only see the results and not the process behind the results. 
Um, I think that skews people's expectations. Um, you know, like there's never going to be a news story that's like, man decides to eat salad and chicken for lunch again. Like the, the news story is only months later when it's like man loses a hundred pounds, you know, yeah. like, see so only, it's only the, the ultimate outcome, never the, the process. Um, so I feel like it's important to shed light on some of the habits that like precede the results because that's, that's the thing that's actually under your control to begin with. And it's the thing that actually leads to the outcome that everybody feels like they want so bad. Absolutely. You sort of get there by, by default. It's funny you mentioned the kind of newspaper headline because I always think it's the same kind of thing about you'd never read a newspaper headline that just said, um, woman age 40, um, maintains weight her entire life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not interesting. You it's need the boring. transformation. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, it's great. And, and what you're doing is obviously getting, you know, traction uh, do you know how many readers you have now subscribe well it depends on how you uh, break it down but we get between one and two million visitors a month uh and about four hundred and fifty thousand or so on the email newsletter so okay. those go we usually send out one or two messages a week and how long is it taking you to go from that first subscriber to where you are now uh, let's see so uh in november jamesclear.com will have been around for six years so we're in the we're nearing the end of our fifth year now um the first year i went from zero to thirty thousand subscribers i think thirty-four thousand, something like that second year we hit a hundred thousand. Third year i think we we're at 225 um and then fourth year we were at like 400 and then this last year, because the audience has been so big, we actually cut like 80,000 people um, who had not opened emails in the last, like say six months or so. Um, so we've, we've added over 500,000, but we're actually, right now we're only at 440 or whatever uh, yeah. because of the, the amount that we've trimmed, which I think was a good choice. I mean, I don't want people on the list if they're not interested in reading the emails or you know what's coming out. And it, um, it helps our you know, open rate and all the other stuff. So. Okay. Wow. And is this, is this a full-time job for you now? This is your sole kind of, uh, occupation or are you still doing other things? Yeah, no, it's been, it's been full-time for me since I started. Um, I was, uh, I've been an entrepreneur for eight years and I've been running jamesco.com for five and a half for six. And so the first two years were really the like struggle years for me where I was kind of trying different ideas and trying, you know, I, I've probably tried four or five different business ideas during that time. Um, and now I just refer to it as the period where I incubated my skill set. But basically, I, you know, I had to learn all the stuff that you don't know in the beginning, which is true for pretty much every entrepreneur. But like, I didn't know how to build a website or how to start an email list or what it took to launch a product or what my writing voice was going to be like or how consistently I would write. Like all those questions I had to get figured out. So um, by the time that I started jamesclear.com, I at least had a better idea of what to do. So I, I started over again with a new brand and started from zero, but I, I knew the right things to focus on that time. So that helped a lot. Yes. A lot, a lot of trial and error, just learning those kind of skill sets. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't really think that story is that unique to me. I feel like pretty much every entrepreneur has some version of that, uh, where the first couple of years they're, you know, just trying to like find their way. Um, and a lot of that is very contextual. Like the, I remember I read a early on, I was reading this article. It was like 50 ways to drive traffic to your website. And I, over the next few months, I tried all 50 and none of them really did anything for me. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Like, am I doing this wrong or, you know, what's going on here? And, uh, really I, I ended up finding two or three other ones that did work for me. And really, I think it just is highly dependent on your business. You know, like Instagram is not really a big deal for me, 
because I share a lot of ideas and it's not as much of a visual brand. I share some of my photography there. So maybe if I decide to make that a bigger focus, that would be more useful. But I have a, a friend who her whole business, she's like a calligrapher and a hand lettering artist. Instagram is everything for her. It's more important for her than her email list is. Um, that's like, that's where her, all of her sales come from. So it just is highly dependent on what you're, what you're working on. Yeah. Let's go way back. Cause you're now, you're writing for a living and you're writing, your writing revolves around building better habits, improving your life through, you know, small daily decisions. Uh, so I, I assume that that, was born out of a, a kind of passion so can you tell me a bit about where you where, where you grew up and you know your teen years what you chose to study at school and things like that sure so I grew up in Hamilton Ohio um, small smaller town uh, north of Cincinnati I lived kind of on the outskirts of it and uh, my grandparents had a farm that was it's like five minutes away from us so I spent a lot of my childhood either on their farm or walking through the woods or um, outdoors and uh, most of my extended family lived nearby. So every Sunday for the first 18 years of my life, uh, me and like 20 of my aunts and uncles and cousins would all go over to my grandparents' house. And my grandma would make dinner for like 20 people every Sunday. So, um, so it was like very close knit uh, in that sense early on. And then um, I would say that there were probably two major influences uh, outside of family uh, in my like early and teen years. And so the first one was athletics. So I played all kinds of sports growing up uh, and then I ended up playing baseball all the way through college. And my dad played professional baseball for the St. Louis Cardinals in the minor leagues for a little while. So that was like a big part of my life. And I always had this dream of playing professionally as well. And, uh, you know, there are all sorts of lessons that you learn from sports about hard work and persistence and how to deal with failure and especially how to publicly fail in front of your teammates or other people. Um, and then also, I think there's something about pushing yourself physically as well as mentally. Um, I really, even to this day, I, I find that I need that outlet. Like I, now I compete in weightlifting competitions and do that stuff. But I really need a physical outlet um, where it's not just mental work. Um, so that was a big portion or a big aspect of my life and really a big area where I first, even though I didn't have the language for it at the time, it was where I was first exposed to ideas about peak performance and practice and habits and rituals. And it was where I like practiced to those things or experimented with those things in the real world, even though I wasn't thinking about them consciously or carefully the way that I do now. And then the second area uh, was school. You know, like, I mean, a lot of kids don't like school. I loved it. I, I really enjoyed it. I feel like I've always been, my kind of like disposition is to be curious or to be a learner or just to like ask questions and dive into things. So I enjoyed doing that at school, but I was doing it outside of there as well. You know, like, I mean, I, I kind of had these like two uh, lives as a kid where the one I was like playing sports and hanging around a bunch of kids that were cooler than me. And then the other where I was uh, like in these clubs, like I was in a robotics club in fifth grade. We were like program different um, little conveyor belts and stuff for Legos and things like that. And uh, there I was hanging around a bunch of kids that were nerdier and smarter than me. And so I kind of like took on pieces of both of those worlds where I was, I was always hanging out with kids who were smarter than I was. So then I was like learning some of the things that they were and they were like helping keep me on the edge. And I was always hanging out with kids who were more athletic than me. So then I was like trying to push myself physically and learning a little bit from them there. And I think both of those ended up kind of bleeding together in some way and, and shaping me into whatever little combination I was. But, um, 
And then I, then I went to, uh, to college and I played baseball and I was also a science major. So I kind of started to, to shift and focus on um, the hard sciences. I studied mostly chemistry and physics uh, in undergrad, but also a little bit of like anatomy and physiology and things like that. And uh, I thought about going to medical school for a long time, um, but then I, I couldn't decide what I wanted to do after college. And so I went to graduate school and got my MBA. And I really just kind of use those two years to like think. Uh, and try to figure out what I wanted to do next. And while I was there, uh, I was, my graduate assistantship was in the Center for Entrepreneurship. And so I saw a lot of people rolling companies out and starting their own businesses. And that was the first time I like really got the itch to start my own thing where I was like, oh, hey, you know, these people are doing it, maybe I can do it too. And, uh, and gradually, uh, that ended up leading to where I am today with jamesclear.com and writing about habits and behavior change and sort of in a way, a combination of all those elements of the, my backstory where, you know, I think about peak performance and physical performance and strength training. And I write about those things. Sometimes I think about habits and behavioral psychology and how to live better in general. Um, and I'm just kind of like curious and investigating those topics. And so my background in science and research helps me there. And then, uh, of course, in order to do that stuff, well, I have to make a business out of it so that I can, you know, continue to do it each day. And, um, that kind of pulls on the business school thread a little bit. So. Yeah, it was, uh, it's easier to connect the dots looking backwards. Um, you know, like at the time I wasn't thinking all this stuff, uh, as I was moving through it. Yeah. Yeah. So you, you're absolutely right. It's like success always looks great in hindsight, doesn't it? But you, at the time you were, like you said, you were just doing what you were kind of into and sort of stumbling your way through it and just following your gut. And, but there's a lot to be said for that. I, I would, I would say just from the people I've spoke to is, just pursuing things that they were um, obsessive about and good at. I was always moving forward. So if you like watch the path, like on a graph or something, you would see it moving in the right direction. But if you had asked me at any moment at any point on that journey, the arrow would be facing in like entirely different uh, <laughs> degrees, depending on what I was interested in at the time. Yeah. It would be like, well, maybe sometimes it's up, sometimes it's down, sometimes it's straight, so, but it's still, it's kind of moving up into the right in general. Yeah, but it just, the interest depends on the moment in time you would have caught me at. Yeah, was it something you uh, wrote recently, or something about the view of the the peak of the mountain? I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I said something along the lines of uh, you want to be able to see. Uh, I'm not sure if this is what you're referencing, but it's so often. Um, you can overanalyze. You want to be able to see each peak and valley. You want to see the whole mountain range and not get obsessed with each peak and valley. So, you know, it's really easy when you're in the middle of a process uh, to overanalyze any particular detail or to feel like any particular instance is uh, the end all be all of, you know, I used to say stuff like, oh, if I could just get my business featured in the New York Times, then I'd be set. Uh, which of course is now that's happened a couple of times and this is just not true. You know, like there's a spike that comes with it, but then a week later it goes back to normal. Um, but it's kind of like the process of overanalyzing your success or your um, current status is sort of like looking at yourself in a mirror from an inch away. You see like every imperfection, it's like way too close. Uh, but I think it's much more useful to step back to like a conversational distance because then you can see the big things that you should adjust or change. Um, but you don't get overly obsessed with minor details that don't matter. So like I want to, my thing is I want to be able to see the whole mountain range, you know, like let's, let me make sure that I'm moving in the right direction and not obsessing over this peak or valley. You said that that kind of itch that you got to start your own thing was that was that but was there anything that dominated that was it a desire to be your own boss to uh, build something to have a particular impact on the world 
probably all of those things to varying degrees, but I can tell you a couple feelings that I had at the time. So I, during my, between my first and second year of business school, I had this internship with a, uh, I mentioned that I was interested in going to medical school. I had an internship at, um, a, an orthopedic, uh, doctor's practice, private physician's practice. And there were, I don't know, maybe 250 employees there. And I was kind of the MBA intern and I got to do a bunch of cool things. I mean, I got to go into like 35 surgeries that summer and see all kinds of interesting stuff. But uh, I would leave each day and I felt incredibly underutilized. I was like, I would come home and I was thinking, man, I have so much more to give, but nobody's asking me to because that's not what my role is. It's like if it wasn't within the narrowly defined definition of what I was supposed to be working on, nobody would ask for me to contribute to it, even though I felt like I had a lot to give. And so I realized that, yeah, that's how it works in organizations, right? Like people get roles, they get positions, and then they're asked to do those things. And anything outside of their position, not only are they not asked to it, not, not asked to do it, sometimes if you step outside of that, other people get very threatened or don't like, they don't like the fact that you're stepping on their toes or contributing to their work. They get uh, possessive of like their position. Um, anyway, they're all all these elements that were associated with that. And I felt like I, I felt like I had much more to give and um, being an entrepreneur forces you into that situation. You know, the, I mean, the typical story is, yeah, you have to be everything from the CEO to the janitor. Uh, but that is, I mean, that is true to a certain degree. Like I had to, to launch an online business. I had to teach myself how to code. So suddenly I was this web designer. Like I'm, I'm not actually a web designer, but I had to be, um, I had to write all the emails. So now I have to be a copywriter and a marketer. Again, I'm like, I don't have any qualifications to be a marketer, but now I have to learn that. Um, I had to be the strategist and the CEO. I had to figure out what the direction was going to be. Um, and then also you have to be like the head of sales, you know, like I'm in charge of building all the partnerships and all the relationships and doing the outreach for interviews and marketing stuff, you know, all that. So there was a lot for me to learn. And I actually really liked that. Uh, I, I wanted that to, you know, I didn't know which parts I'd be good at and which ones I would be bad at, but I knew that it would push me. So I liked that part of it. And then of course there, there were the things that you just mentioned a moment ago that, yeah, I mean, I want my work to matter. You know, I, I want my work to feel like it's making a contribution to the world and that I'm making kind of my little dent in my corner of the universe. And I thought that, I thought that, that working one-on-one -on -one with people or working face to face, it gave me a, a deeper sense of meaning, but what it didn't give me was scale. And so the thought that I had was, well, if I'm early in my career, I should build the scale now so that I have the, the ability to reach as many people for as long of a time as possible. And then once I have the scale and I have the expertise, I'll be able to work with people one-on-one. -on -one. Um, and so I haven't made that shift yet. I'm still in the scale building phase, but I wanted to be able to connect, you know, I mean, I send an email to 440,000 people each week. Like that's, there's no way that I would ever be able to work with that many people during my career. So um, it, those emails probably impact people in a much smaller way than working one-on-one -on -one with somebody or working face-to-face -face with them. Um, but it, I don't think you have to choose. You know, you just have to, now that I've built the scale, now I can shift to focusing to doing some more of that meaningful in-person work. But anyway, so that was kind of on my mind as well. Like how can I have the biggest impact and reach the most people? Yeah. Yeah, I think to you, the point about your emails as well is that it's so easy to read. It's so easy to read a really helpful email, and then you read it and you folder it, and then you just you know, that's it. Get it. But I think so. But you could equally remember. You could equally forget that as easily in a one-on-one -on -one scenario. But I think what what is so great about your strategy at the moment is 
the, you, you read the emails and they, you, you write twice a week, don't you? And you, I know you make quite a sort of point about the two right. you write. And it's, I suppose you see, because you're seeing them twice a week, every week, different ideas every time. You know, your head does start to connect the dots. And I think, it's a, I think the way you're doing it is, is, is brilliant right now. Like you said, much more effective on a bigger scale anyway than, you know, doing it. Hmm. That's actually a really crucial point. I hadn't thought through that in the same way that you had just phrased it. But the idea that any individual email does not make that big of an impact on 400,000 people or whatever. But by repeating the same themes week after week, you can start to, to make a much bigger shift in people's behavior, um, which I think is probably a powerful way to have both scale and impact. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I think it's because I've been following your stuff for quite a few months. And it's if I'd read one from you, there's no way later someone's if I was, you know, waxing lyrical about you and someone said, well, what does he do? There's no way I could reel it off, but I think because I'm a regular reader and so are another 400,000 people, they'll probably be you know, able to talk about your work and your friends and colleagues. So I think that's, you know, I think that's really good. Do you remember your, your first article? Do you remember what it was about? Do you remember sort of the, the title? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, I, well, so I had been writing about habits and behavior change on, on my own in private for a few months before I launched the site. And I had this Word document that was like maybe 60 or 65 pages long. And it was just kind of like James's thoughts on habits. Uh, and it was, it was more written for myself than for anybody else. But once that docs, um, and uh, anyway, randomly, I, I, I was on this trip to Russia and uh, I, I was at this conference and there was a, a panel session with Richard Branson. And one of the things that he said during the panel, he was like telling a story about how he started Virgin Airways and basically from his connection to get to the island and it got canceled for some maintenance or gas or something. And so this was like in the seventies. Um, and so he went over to, it was like pretty early in his, his entrepreneur. And uh, anyway, he went over to the desk to charter a plane and he chartered the plane uh, to go to the next island it had like maybe 12 seats on it. He sold, he went over and got a little chalkboard and wrote like Virgin Airways, $29 on it and went over to everybody who just had their flight canceled with him, sold the rest of the seats on the plane and then used their money to pay for the, the plane. And um, that was his, they, so they went over there. It was just like such a Branson thing to do. And on the flight over, uh, he was like, man, I just, like, I just sold people a bunch of plane tickets. Maybe I should start a start an airline company. And um, the lesson that I took away from that was that he, he had no experience. He wasn't an engineer. He didn't know how to fly a plane. He started before he felt ready. And uh, so the very first article on the site is called Start Before You Feel Ready. And um, it was kind of like, it was just top of mind because I just heard him tell the story. But it also was like a little bit of a reminder to myself to start writing on the site. And so I just said, you know what, I'm going to do this every Monday and Thursday. And I wrote two articles a week like that for the next three years. And that was what changed everything. That was what set me on that path. And um, in a sense, that's also a microcosm of all the articles that have come after because uh, each article that I write is really just a reminder to myself uh, about the ideas that I'm writing about. It, it sounds like I'm writing to somebody else, but really, it really is just me trying to like keep myself on track. Yeah, great strategy. Um, a lot of public accountability as well. For sure, yeah. 
Yeah, there's great sites, isn't there? There's um, Diet Bet and things like that, where you, you basically make a public wager that you're going to lose a certain amount of weight by a certain date. And, you know, once people do it, they just seem to absolutely smash through their goals because there's, there's real, you know, really is something on the line. And I think you have to put money down on some of them as well, uh, which goes to... Yeah, there are a variety of tools like that. Uh, one of them is called Stick. Uh, another one's called Beeminder. There's some others as well where you essentially place a bet. Uh, and if you fail to go to the gym four days a week or meditate each day or do whatever your habit is, then your friend or your accountability partner like donates the money to a charity you hate or something like that. Um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, yeah, for certain people that seems to work quite well. Um, I feel like a key that in the, with the money aspect, there's a, there's an immediate loss there. Um, I feel like the key for a lot of accountability partners is that you care about the other person's opinion of you. If it's just somebody random, then sometimes it can be easy to dismiss that because you're like, well, uh, you know, who cares if they don't like me like that? You know, it doesn't matter. So there's, I don't know, there needs to be some kind of, you need to feel invested to the other person for that to be effective. Yes. Yeah. I always think it's sort of someone that you um, aspire to be like or some kind of mentor or something. And then, mm -hmm. The pressure really is on, isn't it? Right, right. Yeah, you don't want them to like disrespect you. You care a lot about their their yeah. opinion of you. Yeah, yeah. That's that's good advice. So, um, if someone right, anyone listening right now had a goal that they wanted to achieve, uh, a two pronged question: What's the biggest mistake everyone's making? If there was, you know, if you could just say one, and then off the back of that, what's three things that that person could go away and do now that makes achieving that goal much more likely? Hmm. So those are good questions. All right. So first, what's the biggest mistake that people are making? Obviously, the actual biggest mistake that people are making is going to be contingent upon their particular circumstance or what they're doing right now. You know, like it's hard to, it's hard to say for everybody. However, I will say that in general, uh, many people have heard things like, oh, you need to start small. But even when you know you need to start small, it's still very easy to start too big. And so almost always everybody starts too big. Uh, for example, if you said something like, all right, I want to, I want to get in shape. I'm going to build a habit of running three days a week and I know I should start small. So I'm only going to run for 15 minutes. But even that is like way too big. It's way bigger than what I'm, I'm talking about. Really what I think you should focus on if you're going to try to build a new habit is what I would call the two minute rule. You scale it down to just the first two minutes of the behavior and you automate that. Uh, so for example, rather than running for you know 15 minutes or whatever, it's I put on my running shoes and I get out the door. Uh, and after you've closed the door, you've completed the habit. If you do anything else, even if you take one step, that's just a bonus. And some people don't, some people resist that because they feel like it sound, sounds like a mental trick. You know, it's like, well, I know the real goal isn't just put my running shoes on. Like I know the real goal is to go for a run. And if you feel that way, what I would encourage you to do is to limit yourself uh, for the first few weeks to only do the, the easy thing. So for example, I had a reader who ended up losing over 100 pounds. And one of the things that he did was he went to the gym, but he didn't stay for longer than five minutes. So he would go to the gym, drive there, get out, do an exercise, five minutes would be up, and then he'd leave and go home. And uh, this is the exact opposite of what most people do. But what you realize when you start to look at it a little deeper is he was mastering the art of showing up. And a habit must be established before it can be improved. You know, almost always when people think about what they want to accomplish, they think about the out, they, they optimize for the finish line. 
rather than the starting line. They think about the outcome. They're like, all right, I want to lose 20 pounds or I want to earn six figures or I want to write a book. Um, it's all about the result. But if you can optimize for the starting line instead, then you have the chance to optimize. If, if you don't master the art of showing up, there's nothing to tweak to begin with. Um, and so, you know, this guy, he went to the gym for five minutes each day and he got like six weeks in and he was like, man, I'm coming here all the time. Like, I kind of feel like staying longer and doing a little bit more, which is precisely the opposite of how many people feel, which is they sit around for a while. Then they think, okay, I really need to get in shape. So then they do something super intense and they join, you know, a CrossFit gym or do insanity or P90X or some crazy workout program. And they do that for like two or three weeks and then they burn out. And then, you know, it's another three months before the cycle repeats itself again. Um, so I would say that that's the, the most common mistake I see is starting too big. Um, what are three things that people can do? Well, one thing that you can do is that you can optimize your environment to make the good habits easier and the bad habits harder. And uh, this is something I call environment design. Uh, so in this book that I just wrote, Atomic Habits, uh, I cover these strategies in chapters six and 12, I believe. Um, and the idea is that, uh, let me give you two examples. So if you want to build a good habit, you want the environment to nudge you in a very obvious, it, you want it to be the good behavior to be obvious. So for example, for many years, I would brush my teeth every morning and night, but I wouldn't floss consistently. And when I looked at the behavior and tried to ask myself, well, why is that? I realized, well, one issue is that the floss is in the drawer in the bathroom and I never see it. So sometimes I just don't remember to use it. So uh, the other issue, this sounds silly, but I didn't like the feel of the floss on my fingers. Like if I would wrap it around my fingers or whatever, it was just uncomfortable. So I went and bought some of the pre-made flossers and I got a little bowl. I put them in that bowl and I put that bowl right next to my toothbrush. So brush my teeth, put the toothbrush down, pick a flosser up, floss my teeth, I'm done. That little environment design change, now I floss my teeth twice a day, I don't even think about it. That's basically all that I did to make that habit um, stick. On the other side, if you wanna break a bad habit, say you have a habit like, I don't know, a lot of people feel like they spend too much time looking at a screen. You know, They watch too much TV or they play too many video games. Um, but if you go into pretty much any living room, where do all the couches and chairs face? They all face the television. So it's like, what is this room designed to get you to do? It's designed to get you to watch TV. So there are a variety of things you could do here. Um, but with good habits, like the flossing example, you want to make your, the right action obvious. With bad habits, you want to make the undesired action invisible. So you could, you know, you could take the remote control and you could put it inside a drawer rather than keeping it out on the coffee table. You could uh, take the television and put it inside like a wall unit with cabinet door so you don't see it. You could take the video game console or the controllers and put those inside a drawer so they're not laying out in the middle of the floor. Um, you could take the, you can also increase the friction associated with the task. So if you wanted, you could like unplug the TV after each use and then only plug it back in if you can say the name of the show that you want to watch out loud. So you're not allowed to like just mindlessly browse or open up Netflix and find something. If you want to, you could take the batteries out of the remote so that it causes you to spend like an extra five or 10 seconds putting the batteries back in. And then you kind of get a chance to ask yourself, like, do I actually want to watch something right now? Or am I just mindlessly browsing? If you really wanted to be extreme about it, you could take the TV off the wall and put it in the closet and only take it out when you really want to watch something. But the point here is that the, the central idea behind environment design is to increase the number of steps between you and the bad habits and reduce the number of steps between you and the good habits.
And if you do that, then imagine the effect of living in an environment where you have like a hundred little things that are nudging you toward the right or desired outcome and preventing you from falling into the bad one. It's much easier to make good choices when you're in a good environment. A lot of times people say stuff like, oh, you need more willpower, you need to want it more, you need grit or to persevere. And it's not that those qualities aren't useful, it's just that they're often a product of the environment. It's very hard to maintain willpower and stick to positive habits if you're in a negative environment. So uh, you wanna prime that to, to make that easier. I guess I'll pause there for now. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's really helpful. Actually, yeah, you, you're so right. I mean, like, we're just working in an office where there are, you know, frequent meetings, like clients coming in or birthdays, there's always cake or biscuits or chocolate, which isn't something I would ever really proactively make a conscious decision to go to a shop to buy. Sure. It would be an occasional choice, but the fact that it's around you all the time makes it incredibly easy to just slide in and grab one. And yeah, if there's always cake in the, in the like common room, then you're just going to eat some cake a lot. I find that uh, if I buy beer, and I put it in the fridge and it's at the front of the fridge where I can see it as soon as I open the door, then I'll just like drink one each night because it's there. But if I buy beer and I put it in the back of the fridge, like tucked underneath the back shelf where it's uh, where I can't see it from opening the door, I'll forget that it's there for like a month. And then I'll, I'll lean down one day and be like, oh, there's beer back there. Like I, and so I didn't really, I, I, you think, oh, I must have wanted a beer, but not really. I just drank it because it was there. So it's um, so often our habits and behaviors are just a result of what is obvious in the environment rather than what we really deeply want. And um, you see this in the digital environment as well. You know, people pull out their phones all the time and browse social media because it's frictionless to do so. It's just right there. So I, you know, on my phone, on the home screen, I've removed all icons uh, and put all my social media icons like two or three swipes away and inside a folder just to create a little bit more friction, just so it's not like I just tap Instagram because it's right in front of me as soon as I open my phone up. Um, but yeah, you can, that same principle of increase the number of steps uh, or reduce the number of steps for the good habits can apply digitally or physically. I, I find that so interesting, uh, particularly the beer in the fridge thing, because it's, that's the opposite of what all the brands want you to do. A lot of products that tell you they need to be refrigerated don't need to be refrigerated. The, the, the brand just knows that if it's in the door of your fridge, you're going to see it, you're going to use it more often, and you're going to buy a replacement sooner. So almost... Oh, that is fascinating. I did not know that. Yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. So, so They say, keep, please keep refrigerated, because what they mean is, please keep in an obvious place that you'll see all the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean some things obviously need to be refrigerated. Sure, sure. Literally just so you see them and use them. Um, wow. Yeah. Uh, interesting you're saying about um about your phone as well you know i i actually haven't done the swipes away thing maybe i should do that but i've i've got a clear home screen but i did I, recently i turned off notifications for like um whatsapp and my email so i don't get like a drop notification anymore and i haven't really quantified it but i feel like i'm probably checking my phone uh, probably about one quarter of the amount that i used to because it's just not well me vibrating all the time which i've just recently switched to keeping my phone permanently in do not disturb mode so i get no notifications if i get a text or a phone call it doesn't buzz or ring and what's interesting is there's been zero negative effects it's been totally positive uh because 
I, it depends on the every year the stat goes up because we get more and more uh, hinged to our phones. But um, the average adult now checks their phone over 150 times a day. So if somebody texts me or calls me, well, I'm probably going to be checking my phone in a few minutes anyway. And so I just see that, oh, someone called me four minutes ago and then I call them back. Um, and so it's not, it, it's been totally uh, positive and it's removed some of those distractions and interruptions from my life. I think a lot of technology now is it's, it's becoming so integrated into the fabric of our lives that it's about figuring out how to design it so that it uh, is there for you when you want it, but it doesn't come to you when you don't need it uh, or don't want it. And if you don't do that consciously, it'll just, it'll find a way to interrupt you without you thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I think it's uh increasingly depressing going out for, for dinner at the moment in any country in the world and just seeing you know people out paying good money to be in a restaurant on a on a date or out with family and not only necessarily just on their phones but i've seen families out for dinner where like the the kids have just got headphones in mm. kind of at the table which is is crazy but again a result of of technology oh, yeah. And people I mean, I've seen tables of four where none of the four people are looking at each other. They're all four looking at the phones. <laughs> they all just—they decided to come in public to sit down and look at their screens together. Unless they're all on a video conference call with each other. But. Right, right. <laughs> Which, I mean, you know, we all fall into it. I'm sure I've made that yeah. mistake many times as well. But it is, it is interesting. It's becoming so tightly woven that you need to, you need to take back control a little bit. Yeah. So all of this kind of stuff is all, um, I assume, in your, in your book, Atomic Habits, which is out soon. Certainly. So, uh, you know, the great thing about the book is it's, it's kind of my most comprehensive discussion of this stuff. So, you know, we're able to talk through some good examples here and, and give people a place to start. But I think if, uh, if you're looking for a good place to understand how habits work, and how to build a system of behaviors for building better habits. That's, that's really what the book, one of the core purposes of the book is. You know, like we, one of my core philosophies is that you do not rise to the level of your goals, you fall to the level of your systems. So whatever results you have right now in your life, your current system, your current habits are perfectly designed to deliver those results. So if you want different outcomes, you need a different system. Uh, and, and your habits are the system of behaviors of repeated actions that you're performing each day. And so the, the way to build a better system is through building better habits. Um, and, uh, and the book explains how to do that in detail. How long have you been, how long have you been writing that book? How, you know, how long, what's the timeline for it? Yeah, it was a three year process. So, um, you know, I wrote about habits for three years before I signed the book deal. Uh, and then on the backbone of that, which we talked about earlier, uh, you know, the, the writing twice a week for three years, that led to the growth of the site and to the interest from publishers and agents and other people. And so that kind of sparked some of those conversations. And then I decided to, to sign with an agent and we signed a book deal. And, and uh, originally I was planning on writing it in two years, but I got about a year in and realized I'm going to need more time. <laughs> um, and uh, so I asked the publisher for an extra year and very graciously they gave it to me. Um, so from the time we signed a proposal to the time the book is coming out is almost exactly Right. And, and obviously I'm based in the UK. I'm aware it's uh, on Amazon, going to be on Amazon. But wh where else could uh, any sort of UK people listening to this find the book? Yeah, correct. So uh, if you go to atomichabits.com, you can find not only the book, but there are a bunch of additional resources like, like templates and downloads. There are a couple secret chapters that are not included in the manuscript itself that you can get. And we have links on there for uh, people regardless of the country. 
they're in. Uh, so the US version is on there, but if you just click on the international editions link, uh, you'll find the print, ebook, and uh, soon audiobook for the UK version. You're um, obviously enjoying great success at the moment. Is there someone who has massively helped you or had a huge impact on you that you would you'd love to thank that you, you maybe just never got the chance to? Oh man. Yeah. Well, there's so many people that have played an important role. So, uh, in the book specifically, I have an acknowledgements page and there must be almost a hundred people that are mentioned in there in some form or fashion. So, um, for the, for that particular project, uh, the acknowledgements is a great place to look. I also keep and have kept for quite a few years now, a, what I call a thank you page on my website. So it's just jamesclear.com slash thanks. And I try to list anyone there who even if I don't, you know, in any individual article that I write or in the book, uh, for example, in the book, I have the acknowledgements and then I also have a very long list of citations. So I think the book is about 250 pages, but we have almost 300 citations. So more than one per page. So I try to do a really good job of citing people and referencing them when they, they influence me in some way. Um, same thing is true for the articles that I write. I try to have like footnotes and citations at the bottom of each one. But occasionally there are people who have played just an important role in my life, but they don't, you know, they don't, uh, it doesn't fit to give them like a line citation for a particular idea or something. Um, and I think those people should be recognized as well. So on the thank you page, uh, I've been able to add pretty much anyone's name who I feel like has shaped me or impacted me or um, improved my thinking uh, or even just played an important role in my life. Like, you know, at the near the top of the page, are a lot of my family members and people who like were kind of formative for me early on. But one thing that writing the book has taught me is that there are, I mean, in a, in a sense, you know, there's that line like, oh, it takes a village to raise a child. But I mean, it takes all of society to write a book. You know, I mean, everything that I am writing, if there is some unique or interesting idea that I have added to the book that has not been distributed or talked about uh, in society up until this point, it's a very small portion of the ideas that are there. Everything that's in there, I mean, is building on a massive body of human knowledge that we have accumulated over thousands of years. There's a great, I wrote an article about this one time, but there's a great story. It's called The Toaster Project. I think it was actually done by a guy who's in the UK. And he went to a store and bought a toaster, uh, like the cheapest one he could get, just some regular toaster, and then took it home and took it apart. And there were maybe like 400 pieces that were part of it. Um, a lot of it plastic, some of it metal. And um, there were maybe like five or six different elements. You know, there was a couple of steel pieces and some nickel and there was plastic and a few other things. And he decided, all right, I'm going to just try to build a, you know, toaster's pretty cheap. It's a small thing. I'm going to try to build one from scratch. And so from, <laughs> and it became just, it's an incredible story because he, so he's like, well, I need to make plastic. All right, how do you make plastic? All right, you need crude oil to make plastic. So he called up like BP and went to an oil company to try to get some crude oil to, you know, he, he was like, I can't mine oil myself. So already I can't build this on my own. Uh, he, he needed um, iron ore to make steel. So he called up an old iron uh, miner, like refinery and uh, mining plant and tried to get some of that from them. And he was like, man, okay, to make this iron into steel, I need to, uh, I need to like melt it down. Um, and so then, he, you know, he's like trying to create this giant fire to do that. And the point is of that project is that if he actually was going to make a toaster from scratch on his own, it would have taken him his entire lifetime. And that's just for a toaster. Like we don't even think about how many things were influenced on each day 
and utilize each day that require the collective knowledge of humanity just to be here. I mean, just this chair that I'm sitting in, so many people touch that in some way for it to be here. And I think that uh, the work that's in the book or any of the ideas that I share, same way, just in a mental capacity. There's no way for me to have come up with any of those ideas without all the work that came beforehand. And um, so in that sense, uh, I have, I guess, all of humanity to thank, but the individuals that are, that are referenced on the thank you page and the acknowledgements are um, that definitely play the central role. That's, that's very profound, uh, but, but absolutely, absolutely accurate. So is there a time in your career where you've, you felt you've really struggled or you felt a bit lost? Sure. Yeah. Does today count? Um, I think, uh, <laughs> I think, um, there are always challenges that I'm working through. Um, the first two years were particularly challenging for me, uh, because I didn't feel like I had a roadmap. So I don't have any entrepreneurs that are in my family. Uh, and I didn't really have any close friends that were entrepreneurs. So, you know, I didn't really have anybody to look to not even to build like the type of business I was building, but just like, what is it like to be an entrepreneur? What is it like to try to create something? So early on, I had to build a lot of new connections. Um, one thing I did, I spent about three months uh, early in, the, in say the first like year uh, that, I was, um, that I was being an entrepreneur, just emailing anybody I could find who was doing something similar to me and asking if they wanted to chat on Skype. And I probably, I probably emailed, I don't know, somewhere between 150 to 300 people and most of them said no, but I did get like 30 or 40 that said, yeah, sure, let's chat. And so at the end of those three months, I had, you know, 30 people that now I could go to if I had questions or, you know, at least we're dealing with similar things. So that was, that was like an important shift for me because it was challenging to not have, uh, I want to say role models, but just not be able to see it done. You know, like when, if you, if you have a bunch of friends that are making millions of dollars and you're like, yeah, I guess I could probably do that. Like everybody else around me is doing it. But if you have nobody who's, um, who's building a business or uh, doing any of that, then it becomes like, it almost seems like a pipe dream. You know, it's like, oh, I would like to do that, but do, do people even do that? Is that even a thing? Um, so that was something I struggled with early on. Uh, but now that I have those connections, it's, um, it's much easier to, to view, honestly, to view almost anything as possible, um, which is a, a very empowering place to be. And then there are all sorts of challenges. Like now the challenges are different. Um, for example, I, I don't think I'm a very good manager. Uh, I don't know. I'm not sure. Part of that, I, I think my team is remote. Uh, and so it's just challenging to be a good manager when you don't see people face to face each day. Um, and in a sense, it's kind of interesting for me to say that, um, that I don't feel like I'm a good manager because I actually felt like I was a really good leader uh, in sports when we were showing up each day and like being on the field, working toward a common goal together. I miss that a lot, the, that physical connection or the face-to-face um, the -face interaction each day. So I don't know. That makes me question like, well, maybe we shouldn't be remote or maybe, you know, I need to um, improve my skills there or something. But there's wherever you're at on the curve, you know, if you, if you map out your path uh, throughout life as this like curve that you're going through, there's always some challenge you're facing at, at whatever frontier on the curve you're at. And so... Um, you don't, you'll never have a life without problems. You'll just have a life with different problems. And the hope is that if you continue to advance and improve, you'll upgrade your problems throughout time. And I would say that's kind of how I feel now. It's like, I have a lot of things I need to solve, but I'm dealing with better problems than I was in my past. And hopefully in my future, I'll be dealing with even better ones. And then, you know, just go from there. Yeah. Obviously you're, you know, big into 
like you said, starting small or the two minute rule. So what is one thing you do every day that for you personally, you feel it's got just a huge return on investment? Yeah, that's a really good question. So there are, I like to group habits into two categories. So the first category are habits that are just kind of like what I would call the fundamentals of life. And once you build them, then you don't really need to think about them that much more. So like tying your shoes or brushing your teeth or unplugging the toaster each time you use it or whatever, something like that. Once you get that stuff set, like that flossing example I gave earlier, I don't, I don't need a process of continuous improvement for flossing. Like I don't need to endlessly refine my toothbrushing technique or my shoe tying technique or something like that. So good enough is good enough for that kind of category. But then there's, there's this second category of habits, which I do care about getting better at and refining. And so the first thing I do is try to limit that number. And so for me, it's probably three areas. So I probably have like writing weightlifting, and then maybe photography, travel photography. Those are kind of the three areas that I'm like, okay, I do want to be better at these things. So the focus is important. Um, the, the one that probably delivers, I guess I'll give you three areas that I feel like deliver an outsized return on investment. So the first one is working out. If I didn't exercise, I don't think I would have a business. I don't think I'd be able to handle the roller coaster ride of entrepreneurship if I didn't have a physical, a physical outlet to rebalance me. Um, and of course, additionally, if you don't have your health, you don't have the opportunity to capitalize on your time. So um, you, need, you need that to be able to do anything anyway. The second one is reading. Reading is sort of like a meta habit that improves all other habits. Whatever habit you're looking to build, dieting, exercise, writing, meditation, learning a language, reading the appropriate book for that habit will instantly make you better at doing that thing. So if you can develop the habit of reading, then you can improve almost any other area. Uh, so that one's huge. And then the third one is writing. And writing is the perfect um, partner to a reading habit. Because in many cases, I don't actually know what I think about something until I write about it. I find that if I'm, if I'm having a conversation and you ask me about something I haven't written about before, what I really am doing when I'm giving my answer is I'm talking my emotions in the sense that I'm talking about how I feel about it in the moment. I'm just giving you kind of like, you asked me about this topic, I have a gut feeling or an intuition or a reaction to it, and then I am just talking basically wherever that gut feeling is leading me. But if I've written about it, if I've had a chance to sit with it and think about it for a little bit and then like get multiple gut feelings and emotional reactions and revise it and edit and make sure that I force myself to get my thoughts on the page and then clarify those thoughts, then I'm much more clear on how I actually feel about it. It's not just about my reaction in the moment. It's about the, the deeper thoughts that I have. And the other thing that uh, writing does is it helps you, it allows you to connect ideas. So it, it takes the, the moment, whatever the topic is you're, you're talking about or the thing that you're reading about at the time, and it allows you to translate that across context, to link it to other things. And so I think those three, uh, reading, writing, and exercise are three huge pillars. Yeah, the, the writing one, uh... Yeah, it really piqued my curiosity. And it reminds me of something I, I read years ago where it was, I can't remember who it was. It's one of those things that always gets attributed to like Winston Churchill or something like that. <laughs> it was like, to things that have angered you personally, go away and write a response and then put it in a drawer and then read it the next day and read it the day after that. And then on the third day, read it, rewrite it, 
and then and then respond and it's mm. you'll see how crazy your initial kind of personal response was going to be because um, you've given you've given yourself the time to logically kind of structure your your response and it's not just an emotional one um, right yeah that's fascinating there's something I mean the human the default mode of the human mind is to feel uh, and once we have those feelings then we interpret them in some way um, but yeah, you're, uh, oftentimes your first response is just the feelings that come up and the emotions that arise and not the, not maybe what you actually think. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a really interesting point. So talking about writing, besides your own, which would make a fantastic gift, are there books that you have given away as gifts a lot? Um, you've enjoyed them so much, you've just given them to someone. Yeah, the book that I've probably gifted the most is called Manual for Living by Epictetus. So it's a, he's one of those Stoic philosophers. Um, and it's very, it's very short. You can read it in under an hour. In my opinion, it's more accessible than the other Stoics. Uh, Meditations by Marcus Aurelius is the one that always gets thrown out uh, as the, the one to start with, which of course is a fantastic book. But, but I tend to like Manual for Living more. The second book that I find really interesting is called, again, it's a short book. You read it in, I don't know, an hour or two. It's called The Lessons of History, and it's by Will and Ariel Durant. They're a husband-wife combo that were, they were historians for like 60 years. And they spent most of their career doing this massive, gigantic, like 12 or 15 uh, piece volume on uh, all of history and like everything that happened. And then uh, at the end of all that, they wrote this short little book called The Lessons of History which talks about the major broad themes that re recur across history, across contexts, cultures, people. Um, what are the things that seem to be typical of human nature, regardless of the time period? And uh, anyway, so I thought that was fascinating, especially given my interest in human behavior and, and habits. Yeah, very, yeah, very interesting, especially to have written a much longer one. And then... Mm. Yeah, and then write something much shorter afterwards. Uh, I'll have to make sure I make a note of those, and I'll, I'll link those under the um, under the interview. What was the last thing that you saw, heard, or experienced that made you think, "Man, that's that's clever." Mm. I don't think this was the la the most recent one, but the one that I immediately thought of was when I went to see Hamilton. Just watching Hamilton, the Broadway play live, was awesome. I mean, it was just a the, I think the, you know, Hamilton is one of the first uh, Broadway plays to have so much rap uh, in the, the musical. And if you, as a result of that, there are way more words per minute in Hamilton than any other Broadway play. If, it, if the words were delivered at the standard pace of a, a play, it would be like 12 hours long or something like that. Um, and instead, it, you know, it all happens in like two hours. So... Anyway, I thought, I thought that was fantastic. Let's see. Uh, there was a documentary I watched recently called Icarus, uh, which is about the Russian doping scandal. That was, uh, I thought that was really well done and somewhat mind-blowing. Anytime I watch a documentary and I'm like, how do they have footage from this? That's usually a good sign. You know, it's like they were, it almost always happens that they were like filming it for some other reason and then something really nutty happens and they just happen to have all this footage from uh, the, like leading, the events leading up to it. And uh, so anyway, I, I appreciated that too. Yeah, Icar yeah, Icarus was was fantastic. It's another one of those documentaries that you said it starts in one place, which is interesting enough. And then it just unravels and unravels. And by the end, you're kind of 
can't really believe what you're watching and or how you got there. All right, last question because I don't want to take too much of your time, and I'm afraid it's not an easy one, but um, I think you'll be able to answer it. Is uh, what is your one to three uh, sentence idea for saving the world? Oh my. Um... I recently wrote an article where I had a three sentences that said, start more books, quit most of them, read the great ones twice. And uh, I think if most people did that, we'd be in a pretty good place. Uh, if more people read a very wide range of books, quit the ones that didn't seem to be relevant to their life or that weren't well written, and then read the great ones twice and reminded themselves of the very best ideas, we would probably have a more educated um, society and hopefully a more understanding and effective one. Yeah, that, that, that is probably the most concise answer I've ever had to that question. Um, but you cheated slightly cause you took something you'd already written, but I would <laughs> allow it cause it was very good. Um, I read that, obviously I read that article and I, I, and I sort of slapped myself in the forehead cause I thought, cause I read a lot of stuff on Kindle and I was just like, I do the stupid thing of I buy the book and then I'm not really enjoying it. And then I'm a bit like, Oh, well I've bought it and I mm. kind of make myself read it. And I, I sort of, like I said, I, I suddenly felt so stupid when you, when I sort of, you suggested, you know, start more and quit more. Cause I thought, well, Kindle allows you to start a book via a sample. Right. And I just, I suddenly I went, yeah, you know what, if I'm not, if, if the sample isn't making me think like I really want to read the rest of it, then yeah, I just won't read the rest. Of it. Right. <laughs> yeah, but, you can tell fairly quickly, especially after you've started to read a, a good bit. Um, you can tell probably within ten or fifteen pages what kind of quality a book is. Um, you just get a sense for the, yeah, the level of effort and care that's been put into the writing, um, and the depth of the ideas. But yeah, so I'll go with that. Yeah, great. Well, great piece of advice, um, James. It's been absolutely great talking. I'll, I'm going to link the book obviously underneath the interview. Uh, it's on pre-order at the moment. I was hoping to take it on holiday with me, but I'll have to read it when I get back. But um, I know you're a busy guy, so thank you so much for your time. And I think this is really helpful for a lot of people listening. So really appreciate it. Oh, well, thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity. And uh, thank you for your support with the book. I, I hope you enjoy it. And I think, uh, I think others will find um, Atomic Habits to be interesting and useful as well. So thanks. Yeah, well, I wish you uh, yeah, all the success in the world with it. Thanks so much, James. Thank you.